Hey, Jeff. Uh, there were a lot of changes in colleges reopening plans from the spring to the summer, huh? Yeah, Michael, I think there were a ton of changes indeed. And I think um, right now, higher ed, of course, is facing yet another fall of, of remote learning or another semester of, of remote learning. And it was just seems like it was a couple months ago when they were talking about being on campus uh, this fall. A uh, number of colleges, of course, are reversing plans. One of the first institutions to do that uh, was Dickinson College in Pennsylvania. And we're going to have the president of Dickinson along with their CFO on this episode of Future Year. This episode of Future You is brought to you by Liaison, partner with the leading provider of strategic enrollment management solutions to leverage the power of community. Learn more at liaisonedu.com. I'm Michael Horn. And I'm Jeff Salingo, and welcome to Future You. It's a new academic year, and last spring when the pandemic first hit, colleges and universities, of course, were expected to be back in session and of course in person. Indeed, many announced their plans with protocols for social distancing a few months ago, but in recent weeks, we started to see institutions walk back those plans as the virus continued to surge. One of the first institutions to do that was Dickinson College, a small liberal arts college in South Central Pennsylvania, my my home state. Um, And today we have with us via Zoom, the president of Dickinson, uh, Margie Ensign, Um, and the Vice President of Finance and Administration, uh, Bronte Burley-Jones. So welcome to the show, Um, and we really appreciate you coming on for what we know uh, is a very difficult time for college leaders. Great to be with you. Thank you. Glad to be here this morning. Yeah, deeply appreciate it. Margie, I'll I'll start with you. Um, Dickinson, obviously, you all formed a lot of committees to look into reopening, initially planned on bringing back students in the fall based on, uh, you know, the COVID tests in particular having quick turnaround times. But as we've seen uh, those tests and the results in particular from them uh, getting slower and slower from a response perspective, uh, you know, at some point, you sort of started to conclude this no longer makes sense, or at least our assumptions are, 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 are not what they were, right? And my understanding is one staff member came to you and said, look, I, I just can't live with myself uh, if something happened because the college brought back students. Is that what finally pushed you to reverse course, or can you take us behind your decision-making? Sure. Um, thanks again for having both of us. So when the pandemic began, um, you may know, we were one of the first to bring our students back from around the world. We're a leader in global education. We had hundreds of students around the world, but we had a sense of what was coming. And so we brought them home early. And um, while we took a bit of criticism at the beginning, you know, later parents said our kids made it home and others didn't. So from the very beginning, the health and safety of our entire Dickinson community has been our priority and that's guided all of our decisions. So that's why we went early in the spring. Um, When we announced that we could bring students back, which was our goal, right? We want them back with us. Um, The testing situation um, was quite different from where it is now. I will say at the outset, this is a national failure. We should not have to be on this call talking about how different institutions are responding to this. But in the beginning, the testing looked like a two or three day turnaround. In a pandemic, you have to have testing and tracing in place. You really can't be back in place safely without those two um, key interventions. 
But as the summer went on, it went from two to three days to five to seven to nine to two weeks. And recently we said, oh, it might be three weeks. That's completely unacceptable. Mm -hmm. um, the contact tracing, um, the state kept saying they would do more, and they are. They're now getting ready to hire a thousand volunteers for contact tracing. But our little community action network has moved faster than the state to put some of these things in place. So that was really the basis for our decision, going back to our value and a priority that it's health and safety. You can't, you simply can't operate safely in a pandemic if you can't test and get quick turnaround times for students, faculty, staff, and community members. So, so Bronte, one of the things that was interesting to me is how Dickinson was among kind of one of the earliest to announce your, your reversing course. And of course, in, in recent weeks, Bronte, they, uh, a number of other institutions have, have joined you. But did you talk about the risks of being an outlier early on? Because we are, you know, colleges also operate in a kind of a competitive market, right? And if you were going to be one of the only ones out there, is that, was that much more of a risk at the time when you, when you were discussing this? I would say, without a doubt, it was a risk, um, but it goes back to what Margie said. We knew what our values were, um, and in our case, we were operating from a place of financial security. Um, we've been at the, the business of contingency planning, building reserves, and understanding what the financial implications of a series of decisions um, might be. Um, so we were clear about what funds we had available should we decide to move in this direction. Um, so we had aligned our resources with our priorities. And so we were confident that we were in a position um, to act in, in, in accord with what our priorities are, this, the health and safety of our community. That's incredibly helpful, Bronte. And, and just to stay on that topic of financial reserves and financial planning, there have been a lot of uh, faculty members around the country who study higher ed, and they've sort of made assumptions that, that colleges are trying to get back uh, because of finances, can you give give us a little bit more specificity around, you know, what is the financial hit to Dickinson and what did that planning look like so that you were able to prioritize the health and safety of the community? Yeah, really good question. I mean, it's a loss of room and board revenue for us and the auxiliaries because we don't have students on campus. So we quantified that, right? Um, so in the form of reserves, uh, fundraising, federal and state relief, and then cost cutting measures. So we also brought the entire Dickinson community into this and said, we've got to pull together. And so it's a combination of those resources that allowed us to get through the spring. Um, and as we thought about all of the different scenarios for the fall, whether that was going to be residential, a hybrid, or a remote, this is what it could look like financially. And if the hit is this size, these are the sequence of actions that we would take. Um, so we're clear. Um, even looking into the spring, what could happen um, in terms of the financial hit to the college and also how we would fund um, that hit to the college. So again, being able to operate from a place of financial security relative to this allows us to, to live out our priorities. So, so Margie, I just can't imagine what is going through the minds of college presidents right now. As I as I talk to them, this is probably one of the most stressful things, probably the most stressful thing. I think that most college presidents are are, are have ever dealt with in their in their careers. I I, I could imagine all the case studies that we're going to have uh, for for decades ahead of us uh, coming out of this crisis. But it's really calling on when I talk to presidents. I keep asking them, what in your experience 
has helped you in this in this moment. And and I was interested because before you came to Dickinson, of course, you served as for seven years as president of the American University of Nigeria, and you had a deal, from what I understand, with the Ebola breakout there. So how did that um, how did that prepare you for this moment? Well, it's probably a dubious distinction to be the only American college president who's gone through this before. But honestly, it wasn't just Ebola. It was a terrorist group that came 50 miles um, away from our campus and 300,000 refugees that my students and faculty had to feed for two years. So I think as this began to emerge, it did bring back all those memories of getting warnings. You know, Ebola may be in Yola, where the university was established with absolutely no health infrastructure. So the challenges there were enormous. um, And we had about 5,000 folks to protect, as well as a community of 200,000 when the army walked out and left us. So I have to say it brought back some tough memories, but I think it also made me and our whole team very decisive. We were and remain laser focused. Here's our values. Here's our priorities. As Bronte said so eloquently, the whole team came together. And Dickinson is an unusual place in that it's extremely cooperative and transparent and everybody's at the table making decisions. So it's not just a group of senior administrators, it's faculty, it's staff, it's students, it's alums sometimes, it's community members. But once we made those decisions collaboratively and together, we have stayed laser focused on this. Um, And all the committees that worked throughout the summer knew what our values and our priorities were. And And I found in Nigeria, in that earlier crisis, you have to set those very early. And if you believe in them, then you make decisions based on those values and priorities. And that's what we've done. And in a way, I'm glad I had those experiences out in Nigeria because I think it helped ground me and make me very aware of the seriousness of this. And that's why as this testing thing um, degenerates again in the United States, it's very clear what the implications of that are. I think there's some wishful thinking going on that we're in a different phase of this. We're not. We're not that different from where we were in the beginning. Until we get that in place, it's going to be tough to operate. That's incredibly well said. And and I think it's interesting, you all setting those priorities and values and being clear about that establishes such a strong culture for decision making going forward, where you can entrust people. Your experience doing that internationally also relates to something earlier you said about Dickinson, which is, of course, you're, you're known for your study abroad programs, you have a healthy international enrollment. Um, and so I, I'd love to go a little bit deeper, because this this relates to the current moment in this country as well, of how the pandemic, but also the current political environment uh, has impacted those presences, right, in, in internationally and in the world beyond uh, the United States. And so I'm just curious about, you, you know, sort of it, the, the reality is what it is out there, but what can you do about it? What can Dickinson do about it to stem that long-term impact? First, let me say before we move to answering that one, um, our board has been very supportive. I can't thank our board enough. Um, They knew this was a decision based on ethics. Not every board is as supportive as ours has been. So I think it's important to make that point. Um, I'm terribly concerned about the message that we're sending to international students about being in the United States Um, and the long-term implications, not just for Dickinson, not just for every college and university in this country, but for our country. 
because the world is globalized and we must be sure that we are open to new ideas to these great people who come here. If I could just briefly read an email that I got recently from a family in Vietnam. It hits yeah, absolutely. So what the student said to me, my family believes that the U.S. is no longer a good destination for higher ed, given how both its people and government have responded to COVID-19, exaggerated by other challenges of race, politics, and anti-international student sentiment. I still believe that American values are unique with American liberal arts education being among the most notable and that Dickinson strongly reflects these values. But given the U.S. as a whole, I no longer consider going to the U.S. for the foreseeable future as a wise option. That is heartbreaking. That has implications for the whole country and every possible facet of our lives. And that we have to turn around very quickly. So, so in terms of um, what can you do, what, are you a little worried, though, about your international enrollment and then study abroad going forward? I mean, what, what are you planning post COVID to make sure that those numbers are where you want them to be? Well, we've done some really unique things. But first of all, we joined, as did so many colleges and universities in this country, the original MIT Harvard lawsuit to stop the most recent um, proposed regulation to keep, you know, entering, to keep international students from being online, um, from those being able to come back to the country. This is outrageous policy that's being developed. But what we've done, because we have global centers all over the world, and I think this is really a unique and creative solution. We have invited our international students to go to those centers in their country, where some of them are being housed, and we'll teach to them there. So um, I think that's a really good solution for the short term. And once we get through this, um, we will very quickly get back to um, expanding our our global operations and our study abroad problems because they'll be needed more than ever. So, Brent, I want to come back to you on, on something you were talking about earlier in terms of room and board uh, uh, in auxiliary revenue. Um, what have you done on, on tuition? Because I know this is a flashpoint uh, across the country. There was a campus poll survey recently that 90% of college students said they thought they deserved a, a, a tuition discount uh, uh, if they were online um, this fall. So could you tell us a little bit about what you did with tuition and then more so about planning now, because we're, we, we keep talking in terms of the fall, but but I don't, I'm not quite sure any of the things that you've all laid out here are necessarily going to get better by winter break. So what happens with the spring? So Bronte on, on tuition, and then let's talk about the spring. Oh, definitely. So with regard to tuition, um, we had previously approved, like most other institutions, an increase for this academic year. We actually rolled that back and left our tuition levels at last year's uh, tuition. Um, so we made the decision to keep tuition flat going forward. Um, so we previously announced an increase, and then we announced that we would keep everything flat for the year. So that's where we stand relative um, to tuition. Um, and when we think about the spring, um, as I said, we've been contingency planning um, and budget modeling um, more than you could ever begin to imagine. So we have looked at a wide range of scenarios for the spring semester. Um, and I can tell you, um, we are clear about how we would fund each of those scenarios. So there's the likely scenario, there's the aggressive scenario, and then there's the worst case scenario. And in each one of those scenarios, we're clear that we have the funding necessary to get us through this. Because as, as you said, 
um, the likelihood that life will return to a normal spring semester, um, not very likely. So again, we'll be in a position to make the decisions that are best for our community because we have the financial confidence that we can manage whatever that financial hit is to the college for the spring semester. Yeah, I imagine you're sick of looking at these sensitivity analyses and uh, all the different spreadsheets that probably roll out right now. But the, uh... <laughs> That's true. We have to actually date them. And this is, you know, version A on this day, version B on this day. Uh, so when this is over, uh, you said earlier, there will be case studies. Nakubo is going to have a field day with the, the case studies that will come out of this this planning effort. Well, it'll be a good historical record to sort of uh, uh, plot this out and figure out the different key decision points, right? But Margie, I guess, uh, you know, thinking about this, not just now, right, but the spring and so forth and, and the broader environment, where does higher ed need help from and what form should that help take? You know, the federal government, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you would expect a bigger response, but spell out some of those measures that you'd love to be seeing right now? Well, um, you know, with this most recent round of negotiations, it's fallen apart. You know, the higher education wasn't at the top of those discussions. I think, and you and Jeff know so well, higher education is misunderstood in America. The role that we play for the country, for national security issues, for research, how we support our communities. So there's a big, huge dialogue and discussion that needs to happen to make sure that our representatives at the state and federal level understand the work that we, the foundational work we do in our democracy. Without that, we're all individually reaching out to congressmen and senators and so on to try to make our case. So I think collectively, we need to do a better job in explaining the role of higher education in the U.S. We need help from the federal level. All of us do. Um, I'm on a call almost every night with the 92 college presidents in Pennsylvania, and some. Um, for some, this is existential, this moment. It is not for us, as Bronte has said. We came into this strong. We will remain strong. But we all better work together to make sure um, the American people and our representatives have a better idea of of what we do in terms of not just education, but our, our key and unique role in sustaining a democracy. So all sorts of assistance um, is needed for, for, uh, for colleges at this moment. No, that's a great point and something that we continue to need to emphasize, I think, which is it's not just about the teaching and learning that it goes on campuses, but it's a much bigger part of the fabric uh, of our democracy and the world's uh, future. So look- well, And look, at this uh, moment, yeah. if I could just jump in, I was Please. on a webinar with three other college presidents and 900, 900 college leaders the other day. And each of us described not only what we were doing on our campus, but in our community. And I thought the functions we have taken over at this moment when we're not getting national leadership is extraordinary. And I would say to both of you, I challenge you, that's a story that needs to be told, how everybody has stepped up to take care of homelessness, food insecurity, unemployment. It's a positive story and it's one that needs to be shouted out, I think. No, thank you. Thank you for that. And and, and honestly, Margie Bronte, I, I know you both are extraordinarily busy right now, reopening uh, campus in, in these unusual times, uh, remote and, and doing all the steps that you're taking for your community. And so super appreciate uh, you both joining us on Future You. Thanks so much for your thank time. Thank you very much. And we'll be right back. This episode of Future You is brought to you by Liaison 
Any of the 31,000 programs that are members of Liaison's CAST community will tell you the challenges of 2020 have proven that you can rely on us to provide uninterrupted admission services to streamline your processes and to fill your pipeline. When you partner with Liaison, you gain access to our technology and our team of devoted customer service representatives. But most importantly, you gain access to the universities and leaders who have been members of Liaison's CAST community for over three decades. Learn more at liaisonedu.com. Welcome back on Future You after a really interesting conversation going behind the scenes of uh, what Dickinson went through and reversing plans uh, around reopening the campus and instead moving to remote learning. Uh, and uh, for this segment of Future You, Jeff, uh, really excited because it's not just you and I reacting to that conversation and contextualizing it, but we're actually bringing someone who knows something uh, to the conversation. Uh, Chris Marsicano, an assistant professor of practice in the educational studies uh, department at Davidson College. Uh, who's been turning a lot of heads in higher ed, uh, Chris, with your college crisis initiative, uh, starting to track what institutions across America are doing in terms of their reopening. So first, thanks for joining us to help uh, put all of this in context. And, and uh, why, why don't you start out by telling folks what the college crisis initiative is? Sure. Well, Jeff, Michael, thank you so much for, for having me on. I'm, I'm a big fan of the work you do, and, and it's such a great opportunity to talk about what we're doing at the College Crisis Initiative, which we call C2I for short, uh, to, to sort of answer your question about who we are and what we're doing, it, it all started on, on March 11th when Davidson decided it was going to go online uh, for, for the remainder of, of spring semester 2020. And I was sitting in my office in a socially distant manner, mind you, with, <laughs> with three of, of my research assistants, and we were all sort of talking about you know, what can we do to help in this situation? It's, it's so difficult to know what to do. How can we be helpful to the sector, to the country, to students and families everywhere? And so the idea we came up was, with was just to start tracking, to track colleges as they decided to go online. So we, we built this quick data set, wrote a, a very, very short paper um, about trends that we saw in how colleges were, were going online in the spring. That paper drew the attention of, of a lot of people. It's surprising to us. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a big surprise. Uh, one, one of whom being the, the great Jeff Salingo. I think you guys know him. Uh, and so uh, we, we, we got a chance to, to talk um, uh, not just with, with people like Jeff, uh, but also with uh, funders and with other organizations to give us a little bit of money so that we could start tracking uh, the, the, the fall uh, uh, um, reopening plans. So uh, many thanks to the ECMC Foundation who has funded our, our project. And so now what we're doing is we're tracking colleges as they as they reopen, uh, whether they're reopening in a hybrid model or an in-person model or an online model. So, so Chris, I think that's a great segue um, to something that I was fascinated by uh, this this summer in that when, Mar when you were talking about March 11th, right, when all these colleges decided to shut down for the rest of the spring semester, or in some cases, they were only going to shut down for a couple of weeks around spring break, but then decided to go online for the rest of the summer or rest of the spring semester. Later on, there was essentially one model, and that was we're going online until the end of the semester. Now we're coming back in the fall and God, to tr track all these different models, right? We see some, oh, we're going to start a couple of weeks early, and then uh, we're going to stop at Thanksgiving, and we're going to go online for for exams and we're going to cancel fall break and now we have hybrid and we're only going to invite freshmen back in the fall and uh, sophomores back in the spring or whatever. I mean, there are 
it seems there are as many plans for the fall as there are colleges in the U.S. What are what are you finding? Sure. So so we have tracked 2,958 two-year and four-year public and nonprofit institutions that are degree granting and have undergraduates. And and from those those institutions, we have about 15 different models uh, that that range from exactly what you just talked about, what we call the Clemson model, which is <laughs> online for two to three weeks before going in person to to you know, fully online, like the Cal State institutions, to starting uh, early and then ending before Thanksgiving, which we call the Notre Dame model. Um, but of those fifteen, of those fifteen models, we we have about seven sort of broad categories, and, and those broad categories range from sort of a maximum flexibility hybrid model to primarily online to to sort of fully online. What we're finding is exactly what we heard earlier in in the podcast today, which is that institutions are beginning to transition to online education, even those that fundamentally and genuinely wanted an an in-person experience. So over the past week, we've had about 40 institutions transition from wanting to do a primarily in-person modality to a primarily online modality. That's that's quite a shift. And and I'm just curious, what do you think like, what are the indicators that they've been looking at uh, as, 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 you know, to make those calls? Because in some ways, you know, Jeff and I were saying earlier, like, the state of play actually hasn't changed that much from now to, you know, a few months earlier in terms of our ability to keep, you know, have robust testing and, and, and things of that nature. What's been the sort of swing, in, Chris, that, that you've seen that started to move all these institutions to change plans? You know, we heard Davidson's take, but, but I suspect it's, there's some variation. Sure. So a couple of things that we're, we're watching, we're tracking. The first is government action. It is really hard to get students from outside of the state of New York if every student from outside of the state of New York needs to needs to uh, quarantine for 14 days. And so and so state action, government action is, is one sort of major component that colleges are having to respond to. Um, my, one of my favorite examples of this is actually Morehouse College, not knowing who whether it should be listening to the mayor of Atlanta or the governor of Georgia, and therefore with that uncertainty, not sure what to, to do as far as bringing students on campus. So that's, that's the first thing, government action. The, the second is, is good old institutional isomorphism. We, like, we have a saying around <laughs> C2I, which is, which is uncertainty breeds uh, uh, imitation. And that's certainly what we see a lot of here. Uh, it, it should not be surprising that once Harvard decides to go all, all online, other Ivies follow, and then Johns Hopkins follows as well. Um, so institutions as they sort of seek legitimacy are looking to each other. Uh, but we, we have put some surveys in the field and we have uh, some indication that schools are really looking out for the safety of their students, uh, looking at public health boards in their counties, that kind of thing. Not necessarily the, the numbers on campus yet. There are just too few students as of August 13th or August 14th when we're having this, this discussion uh, to, to, to show what those numbers look like on campus. But they are also looking at, at the public health components of all of this as well. So, so Chris, the thing I love about your project as a, as a reporter is that I'm thinking, hmm, I might do a story on X. I wonder where the data uh, are, and 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 you're there with it. Uh, tell us a little bit behind the scenes, a little bit. How how are you how are you actually doing this? Uh, I'm just fascinated when I ask you for a piece of, of data, and you're like, okay, let's get on the phone. We get on the phone, and a, a week later, magically, the numbers show up. So so what are you doing? It's 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 pretty fun, and 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 credit goes out to the the 35 or so students who are really powering this. It, it's, it's fun to, to, to be the director of this because my job is basically to look pretty. They do all the hard work. Uh, their brilliance and their talent 
is, is always fun to sort of bask in the glow of. Uh, but, but in general, we are trying to figure out how colleges are innovating. And so we have to be a little bit innovative ourselves. So we take a, an old world, an old school approach, and then a sort of a new school approach. The old school approach is we've got about 30 students that we call data collectors who go out uh, to all 3,000 or so college websites that we track. Uh, about 4,000 if you include the international schools that we've begun to track as well in the UK and China and elsewhere. And they hunt down reopening plans and they read those reopening plans and go through a rubric to determine what the plan looks like. They, they then categorize that plan and, and put it into our data set. But we also have a group of, of what can only be called data wizards through another project at Davidson called Project Pronto, who have built the dashboard that you can use at collegecrisis.org slash dashboard, but have also built for us a web crawler program that tracks, that goes to every single website in our data set every night at midnight. It determines whether or not those websites have been updated, and in the morning sends us a report with all of the institutions that have updated their websites in the past 24 hours. We then use that report to flag where our data collector students should go to, to figure out whether there's a bit, been a plan change. We get a lot of false positives. Institutions are are, are updating their website all the time, uh, uh, but, we, but we do, it does allow us to sort of hone in on where there might be ma major updates. So we are now at the point where by and large, we can get an institution updated within 24 to 36 hours. Um, there's sometimes a lag on it. And, and to be clear, we're not perfect. The data are not perfect. We're trying to, to track uh, 3,000 institutions with 30 18 to 22 year olds. We're gonna make mistakes. And, and when we do make those mistakes, we ask institutions to let us know either by emailing us at c 2 at davidson.edu or filling out a, uh, a correction form that is available on both the Chronicle of Higher Education website and our dashboard as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and incredible work. I, I, just shifting gears a little bit, something that I was struck by in our conversation uh, j j just before this with Margie and, and, and Bronte, uh, Jeff was, you know, them talking about frankly, like how many stakeholders they have involved in their decisions uh, around reopening and then reversing plans and, and sort of the consensus-driven decision-making that seemed to go through it. And I was trying to think to, to myself, that, that sounds like a recipe for paralysis, not rapid decision-making, uh, but it seems to have worked for them. And I, I think it's because they had such clear alignment on goals, values, right, right, like priorities, and then everything could sort of flow from there and you asked, uh, and, and, and they brought in a, a conversation about the board's role, right? Um, that, that I think is very interesting in that because the board has to be behind that for everyone to, to, to follow suit. And, and I'm curious, both of you guys, I mean, you, you both think about this a lot. Boards of higher ed right now seem to be, you know, all over the map relative to their leaders, right? On what they want. A, a major fault line from my perspective is, are they a public board uh, where maybe they're appointed by the governor and therefore there's a political set of considerations uh, into this dynamic versus a private board might be able to have a very different stance on what the college does, but they're probably also looking at the finances of the institution as well. And so that sort of factors in. How are you, you know, how are you both breaking this down? So, so Michael, I'm going to jump in there because Chris is probably going to kill me because every every week I call him up or email him and say, "Hey, Chris, could we uh, run some numbers on X or Y?" Uh, and I'm 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 actually interested in this, and I actually don't know if this is in probably not in the reopening plans or or what your researchers are, are looking at. But I I started making calls a couple of weeks ago to some friends who sit on boards because I was kind of interested. Are you voting 
on uh, your plans for the fall as a, as a board. Uh, because to me, this is sometimes a uh, a gray area about whether this is the management of the university, which is usually in the purview of the management team, meaning the president and his or her senior team, or is this the fiduciary responsibility of the college or university, which as you know from the discussion we just had with Dickinson, huge financial repercussions of whatever you decide. So I was I was kind of curious, and, and Chris, you probably don't know this yet, but um, perhaps this is something we could look at, is, you know, Who's who's making the final decisions on these things? Yeah, I mean, we've seen institutions respond in different ways, right? So if you look at major, large public university systems, often it is that university system board or the governor's office or something like that. I, I think specifically about the UNC system. Institutions are not allowed to make their own decisions. They must have a, a sort of in-person modality. It's not like Chapel Hill could all of a sudden tomorrow say, hey, we're going to be online without the approval of the state system board, which in a state as diverse and as as broad as North Carolina is in terms of its public institution types could be trouble, right? So you have UNC Asheville up in a small sort of 4,000 to 6,000 student liberal arts college effectively in the mountains, um, having very different needs than UNC Wilmington, which would be on the coast and UNC Chapel Hill in the middle of the state. And so having that sort of state board make that decision means that it confines the responses that colleges and universities can have. On the other hand, you've got places like Paul Quinn, where Michael Sorrell uh, certainly has draws that sort of the main main focus here and and pushes an institution in really exciting and innovative ways, developing a 36-month bachelor's degree in in around three months online. Uh, And and so you differing institutional types certainly change who makes that final decision. Um, We have not collected specifically who's making the final decision, but Jeff, give us a week. We'll get it done. <laughs> there, there you go. So, so one, one thing that um, has also struck me, Chris, in your data is if you looked, I, I'm, I'm going to mess up my time frame a little bit, but if you looked three months ago, the dominant plan for colleges was to reopen in some form or fashion. And there was the high flex and like there was different variations of within your seven models, right, that you were tracking. But I, I think it was majority were there. And then it's switched, I think, to where majority are now remote, I think. But I'd I'd love the numbers. But what was maybe even more interesting than that to me is how many institutions honestly still haven't made a decision. And and Jeff, this goes to our conversation about like communication uh, with stakeholders in higher ed and and how you think about that. And, And I've just been struck by you know, sort of the lack of transparency sometimes uh, in, in how these plans are, are, are getting made and what, what communities even understand about them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to jump in on the, on the to be determined. You know, yeah, higher education, as you guys, as you guys know, is, is a very broad set of institutions. Uh, in our data set, we have every nonprofit and public community college as well. A lot of, of the to be determined are very localized, very small public or nonprofit community college type settings. There are very few major four-year universities in terms of size or in terms of Carnegie classification, however you want to define them, that that have yet to come up with a a to-be-determined plan, or who have have yet to come up with a plan, I guess is the way I should say that. Um, But yes, Michael, you're spot on. We we saw a lot, sort of the majority focusing on primarily in person with some online options. At the beginning of the summer, we are very quickly barreling towards predominantly online with some in-person 
uh, at the end of the summer. So whether that's moves from primarily in person to online like Dickinson or whether that's moves from a more hybrid model to a more online model, we are beginning to see more and more transitions towards online education. So Chris, as we get ready to, to wrap up here, I'm, I'm, first of all, let's tell people where they could find your, your data. Let's start there first. Yeah, sure. So uh, if you're looking for data visualizations, you can find them on the Chronicle of Higher Education website. We are now their provider of data uh, for their their tracker. But you can also go to www.collegecrisis.org and view our dashboard there. So what's the long term? Well, let's let's talk about the medium term plan for your project and then the longer term plan. Obviously, I'm assuming you're going to continue tracking stuff in the in the year ahead. But then where what happens with all of this? What, what do you hope this becomes? Sure. So I, I think in general, we want to see how colleges and universities are innovating, how they're changing that thousand year old business model uh, over over time here. And and a lot of times crisis is what pushes you to innovate. And so that's what we, we are trying to do is to figure out how colleges innovate in a crisis. Right now, our focus is almost wholly on COVID-19, but we expect to expand and focus on other major issues within higher education institutions. We've collected some data on racial unrest on college campuses. We've collected some data on gun violence in, in local communities and, and protest movements around. So we hope to, uh, once we can help colleges uh, come up with the responses to COVID-19, we hope to be able to move to other crises and, and be able to work on other crises as well. Um, you know, this all comes from a very liberal arts tradition. I got to throw out the, the Davidson College liberal yeah. arts tradition here. Um, we, we, we looked back to look forward. And, and like I said, a, a thousand years, a thousand year old model of higher education, we looked 400 years ago to, to a small Italian city state, Ferrara, which uh, during the middle of the bubonic plague had zero deaths from the plague compared to Milan and Venice that had 40,000 and 60,000. Um, what Ferrara did to, to combat the plague was basically collect data, go door to door, figure out what people were doing, talk to other cities, figure out where there were outbreaks and control the, the gateways in and out of the city to, uh, to, to make sure that those outbreaks didn't reach Ferrara. We wanna help colleges be Ferrara. We wanna be the data that colleges use to make decisions about how they can help manage crises on their campuses, whether that's the bubonic plague, COVID-19, or some future as yet unknown crisis. Well, well Chris, it doesn't surprise um, Mike or me that, that Davidson's a leader on this. We've had Carol, your president, on the, on the show, of course. Uh, I've spent some time at Davidson for my new book. Uh, it just seems like it's a leader in, in so many different areas. And I think you're right. It shows really the value of, of a liberal arts education that can actually be practical uh, in a time like this as well. And, and I think that's a great mix of, of what I think we've always talked about on the show around the liberal arts um, tradition. So thanks, Chris, for being with us today. Well, thank you, Jeff, and, and, and thank you, Mike, and, and the whole team at Future U, and, and, and especially thank you, Jeff, for featuring Davidson in your book. I, I have to tell you, having read a little bit of it uh, already, you, you have nailed our admissions director, uh, Chris Gruber, perfectly. I really hope he gets the chance to look at it. Uh, uh, your, your description of his goatee and jolly attitude, jolly attitude is just perfect and spot on. So, so thank you for giving Davidson the opportunity and being a friend of the college. No, it was, it was great to be there. Um, again, thank you for being on and also Margie and Bronte from Dickinson College for joining us earlier. And most important, thank you for listening. We really love to hear from you. So please drop Michael and me a line with ideas, comments, uh, questions, or even complaints about the episode. Until next time, this is Future You.
Hey folks, Michael Horn here. Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of Future You. And just a reminder to please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like the podcast, rate us so that others can find us and uh, find out about the good conversations that we're having here. As always, thanks so much for listening.